Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the takeout ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey everyone, this is your host, Major Garrett, with some really good news. This week, we have a special addition to the takeout feed. We are proud to bring you an episode of Politico's Playbook Deep Dive podcast featuring their chief Washington correspondent, Ryan Lizett. Now, when it comes to American politics, Ryan is simply one of the best reporters, writers, and thinkers we have. In this episode of Playbook Deep Dive, Ryan paints a picture of what Democratic strategists tell him they fear most, at least in concept, when thinking about a formidable rival for President Biden, one not named Donald Trump. With Trump the undisputed frontrunner, at least currently for the GOP nomination, the answer to that question, what do Democrats setting aside Trump fear most, is, or at least should be, front and center? And where else would Ryan and the Deep Dive podcast be? It is our pleasure to bring you this episode and to remind you to subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive for the stories behind power brought to you by host and Playbook co-author Ryan Lizza. If you talk to Democratic strategists about the 2024 presidential election, there is a certain type of Republican nominee who they fear. Someone who knows how to speak in the language of inclusion. Someone who can discuss abortion and guns without alienating those all-important suburban voters in Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia. Someone who has a record of standing up to his own party on some of the most fraught issues of the culture wars, like trans rights. Someone who can argue that he or she has almost as much government experience as Joe Biden himself, but is still younger. Someone who handled the pandemic in their state in a way that avoided some of the most unpopular decisions of both Democrats and Republicans. And someone who spends a lot of their time explaining to Republicans why the GOP should leave Donald Trump in the past. Could that kind of person actually win the Republican primary? Well, nobody would put money on that right now. But Asa Hutchinson, who sounds an awful lot like that imaginary candidate that Democrats fear, is here this week to tell us why you shouldn't count him out. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Asa Hutchinson got his start in politics as a U.S. attorney during the Reagan Revolution, when his home state of Arkansas was still run by Democrats. Then he spent a decade in the political wilderness, running unsuccessfully for Senate and Attorney General. But in 1996, he won a seat in Congress. That's when he first became well-known nationally as one of the managers in charge of prosecuting the Senate impeachment trial of fellow Arkansan Bill Clinton in early 1999. The affidavit, and uh, of course by that time the, the, the DNA on the dress had been revealed. When the White House changed hands in 2001, Hutchinson joined the administration of George W. Bush, first as head of the Drug Enforcement Agency, and then as an undersecretary at the newly created Department of Homeland Security. After that, it was back to fits and starts. He ran unsuccessfully for governor of Arkansas in 2006, but he didn't give up. Eight years later, in 2014, he was elected to that same office. He served two terms, and shortly after stepping down this year, he announced he's running for president. And now 
I bring that same vigor to a fight in another battle, and that battle is for the future of our country and the soul of our party. In the old days, a successful two-term GOP governor would be an obvious top-tier presidential candidate. But in 2023, Hutchinson so far is polling at about 1%. If there's one thing that makes him stand out so far this year, it's that he's willing to say things about Trump that other Republicans aren't. He recently wrote that the former president has led us astray, undermined the fabric of our democracy, and is emblematic of bad leaders who are focused only on themselves or on settling scores with political opponents. That's tough talk from a guy at the bottom of the heap. But as you will hear in this conversation, Hutchinson has a deep reservoir of something that has served him well during his nearly 40 years in politics. Optimism. I spoke with the former Arkansas governor after his first official trip to Iowa. He opened up about why he decided to run, how he thinks he could take down Trump, and why his record, which is among the most conservative in America, is full of surprises. I know you've been asked a lot about this, and so I know what you're going to say, but I think our listeners will be curious about this. And one way in which you have distinguished yourself from some other Republicans is on the issue of gender-affirming care. There was a bill to uh, ban that care for minors, um, and you surprised a lot of people by vetoing it. Tell us what your thinking was on that issue. Well, I hope it showcases to people that I think for myself, uh, I try to follow the Constitution I try to listen to people, and I try to make good decisions. And uh, that is an example of where it wasn't politics. It was, uh, you know, what's the role of parents in raising their children? And whenever you look at health care decisions, whether you're thinking about, you know, whether the children should be vaccinated or whether the children should have other kinds of health care, I think there's a limited role of the state. And so if it had been a bill that, focused on the extreme, such as transgender uh, or gender reassignment surgery, I would have signed a reasonable bill in a minute. But the extreme bill that I viewed as unconstitutional didn't have a grandfather clause and uh, took away uh, parental decision-making. I said it was a step too far, and I, and I vetoed it. You know, it's a, it's a fair debate that's out there. We're all concerned about the children and, and what— uh, we're doing in our society and the cultural wars, but you know, I stated my beliefs on it, and uh, uh, I think it's important to be able to uh, understand uh, the role of parents and and try to rightly divine, uh, you know, when does the state step in and when do you leave it uh, to the parents? And I I drew the line where I think our constitution requires it. All right, let's talk about the primary here. When you look at this race, I mean, you, I think you, you surprise some people by jumping in. Um, a lot of senators who I think a lot of us thought would run decided not to run. And I think understanding your history a little, a little bit, now I'm a little less surprised that you decided to do this. <laughs> yeah, it, you've, run a, you've run a lot of tough races, but you've lost a lot of tough races. And you've gotten pretty far when people underestimated you. When you looked at this race and— 
I mean, I know you're going to say you just want to be president, you want to do this for the American people, but come on, put your strategist hat on for a second for me. When you looked at this race, when you looked at this field, when you looked at what the Republican Party and the primary looks like, what gives you the confidence to say, you know what, there's a chance here, there's a shot. <laughs> Trump is not the inevitable nominee, and DeSantis is not the inevitable alternative uh, to Trump. We can pick the lock here. Well, first of all, there's two choices whenever you look at the future of our country and the Republican Party. You can just say uh, Trump's too far ahead. Uh, he's uh, the inevitable nominee. And so let's just uh, have a coronation. Well, I'm not willing to do that. So if you're not willing to do that, then you've got to step up and say, let's provide an alternative. And uh, I believe I'm a good alternative to, uh, for the future of our party and our country. And so we're going to fight that battle, and you can't win unless you start. And we started, and we're headed in the right direction. Now, from a practical standpoint, sure, uh, it's a long shot. Uh, but, you know, I do duck hunting. I like duck hunting, and uh, my best shot is a long shot. <laughs> I can hit that, uh, that bird from a long ways away. It's the most un uh, unpredictable political environment in my lifetime, uh, you know, what happens to Donald Trump and his ups and down the polls is remains to be seen. We've already seen uh, another uh, leader who was a front runner, actually, uh, uh, you know, Governor DeSantis uh, virtually collapse in the polls. And so uh, they're going to be looking for an alternative. And I was wide open for looking at alternatives. And I'm there campaigning, presenting my case. What, do you know Trump at all? Have you gotten to know him over the years in any context? Oh, sure. I've been in the White House with him many times. I mean, I was governor during the pandemic, and we worked together. And, you know, I could go through a whole litany of issues that I believe he handled well. I think he made some mistakes during the pandemic, uh, but I think he did a great job on our relationship with Israel and the Abraham Accords. So there's a lot he's done well, but I do believe that a second uh, term of the Trump presidency is not good for America. I think it would be more uh, about him uh, versus, uh, you know, what's the, the right direction for our party and our country. You also know Ron DeSantis overlapping as, as a governor. What's your take on DeSantis? You said he collapsed uh, so far. That's a strong way of putting it. But what's, what's your take on him and why he doesn't have what it takes to beat Trump? Well, and just because he's collapsed over the last month doesn't mean he's not going to have a resurrection or a comeback from that. That's the up and downs of polls. But, you know, I don't know uh, Ron DeSantis as well as I know many governors. And so we'll just have to see uh, how he performs out there and how he uh, meets people in Iowa and makes his case. Uh, we have some differences policy-wise uh, as to, uh, you know, uh, attacks on business and and uh, the uh, style that uh, he leads with. But he's done a lot of good things in Florida, and he's a formidable uh, candidate. And I look forward to, if he runs, being on the debate stage with him. Well, just quickly on that, the attacks on business, does it bother you what's going on with DeSantis and Disney? Would, would you have done anything like that uh, in Arkansas? You know, no, I, no, I've spent my time as governor recruiting business to our state and recruiting jobs and supporting our business. So it's really foreign territory for me and other governors to see a governor attacking the largest employer in the state. And while many of us disagree with Disney, I certainly disagree with Disney on some of their leftist social policies. It's not the role of government to 
punish them and attack them for it. The same way I wouldn't want uh, California in a left-leaning government to go after conservative businesses. So uh, to me, you know, the conservative approach uh, of a governor is to let's uh, support the creation of jobs, let's support free speech, let's don't punish business because we disagree with them. Yeah. Um, Governor, what's your metric of success going to be here? If we're having this conversation on the precipice of the Iowa caucuses, where do you want to be in this race? Where do you want to be in the polling and the fundraising and all the rest after the new year? Well, to be able to uh, make it to the finish line, uh, you've got to uh, make it to Super Tuesday. And uh, Super Tuesday is an important date for me because, you know, that's whenever you have many of the southern states that will be voting uh, that uh, I have strength in. Uh, and so, you know, uh, Iowa is important to me. Uh, I'm going to be in New Hampshire as well. And so you ask about the metrics. I think everybody, the candidates who actually uh, file and announce, uh, have to self-evaluate regularly as to, you know, are we raising the money that we need to sustain the campaign? You know, what's the response of voters? Part of that's being measured in the polls. But it's way too early to make those decisions. Uh, I expect to be on the ballot in Iowa. I expect to be on the ballot uh, on Super Tuesday. So, uh, the economy is an important issue right now that impacts our families, but it's going to be an increasingly important issue because our economy is starting to struggle, and I see 2024 is going to depend upon candidates that can understand the importance of balancing a budget, uh, creating jobs in the private sector, and uh, moving our economy forward. So, you know, what I hope that people get to know is uh, my life story. Uh, that's an important part of any presidential candidate. I don't think people realize how, you know, re realize your full resume. You've been through a lot. And a couple of interesting episodes I wanted to ask you about. One is, I happen to be reading this new book by Jeff Tubin about Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. And so when I, when I noticed in your biography that when you were U.S. attorney for the Western District of Arkansas, um, you had a, a very... Uh, 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 well-known role in um, this group called the Covenant, the Sword, and the Army of the Lord. That was a sort of uh, sort of Waco-like situation, and um, uh, the guy who was the founder of that group, uh, James Ellison, I, I, I learned was actually uh, someone that Timothy McVeigh was um, you know was interested in or, or knew. And Clinton was the governor at the time, I believe, when that happened. But but tell us a little bit about that episode. Well, it was an extraordinary time because uh, in Arkansas and across the nation, we had the rise of extremist groups on the right. Uh, they were neo-Nazi. They were part of the identity culture. Uh, they were white supremacists. And so we had a, a nest of them, a compound of them in northern Arkansas, extremely violent. Uh, they were connected with the other violent extremist groups across the country, and we had a, uh, an arrest warrant for the leader of the group, James Ellison. We had search warrant for the compound. We had 200 law enforcement officers ready to uh, do the search and make the arrest with SWAT teams from five states, and all of a sudden, uh, a member of the order from the North West United States came in headed toward the CSA compound 
and shot and killed Trooper Leniger of Missouri. And so it all just blew up with the national media there, with the uh, James Ellison refusing to surrender. Uh, the hostage rescue team asked me to come in and help negotiate, and I did. Wow, so you personally negotiated with, with Ellison himself? Well, no, I was at the Ford uh, Operating Center with the hostage rescue team, and we negotiated over the course of three days. I was assisting in that. They gave hmm. me a bulletproof vest to put on, uh, and I said, this is not why I went to law school. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it, it was one of the most successful law enforcement operations uh, in Arkansas history. Uh, they surrendered without a shot being fired. I successfully prosecuted them in court, and it was a really a connection, as you can see through history, with Timothy McVeigh and the uh, bombing of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. There was also an assassination plot on me, uh, along with the FBI agent and the federal judge uh, during that time frame. Was that figured out and foiled, or was the the attempt actually uh, made and it was just unsuccessful? What happened? Well, uh, yes, it was unsuccessful, thank goodness. Uh, And Uh, It was something that we did even not know about at the time, but later the investigation showed that uh, James Ellison, the leader of the CSA, sent Richard Wayne Snell out to murder, again, the federal judge, uh, myself as a prosecutor and the lead FBI agent, and uh, that was unsuccessful. It was a snowstorm. His car was derailed. He took that as a sign of God to retreat. And uh, we later discovered this uh, assassination plot. And uh, Richard Wayne Snell, of course, was one of the most uh, extremely violent members of the CSA. He was later executed uh, for uh, murdering a pawn shop owner in Texarkana and Trooper uh, Lewis Bryant in Dequeen. Uh, and they were ma- racially motivated. So just an wow. extraordinary time in history, very risky, but also Whenever you take a stand against violent, unlawful extremism like that, it does help educate the public as to the danger of those groups. And it was uh, successful. I hope it, I know it made a difference. Wow. Well, I can't even imagine dealing with something like that. I'm surprised you stayed in politics after something like that. And just to jump around a little bit, I want to ask you, you then served in the Department of uh, Homeland Security. Uh, in the Bush administration. That was your your second senior role uh, in, in the Bush administration. I just want to stick with that for a second. And, you know, I think maybe more so since you left uh, DHS, violent extremism has become an increasing priority for DHS. And we are seeing some uh, um, some links today with some of the same kinds of groups that, that you were just describing becoming a, a part of our, our politics. I just want to ask you a little bit about what you saw at DHS with the, the rise of some of those groups, or, or was that really after you left? And then ask you to comment a little bit about what you see in our politics today, and if you see anything that reminds you of those early 80s experiences when you prosecuted James Ellison. Uh, I've followed uh, the developments and the rise and fall of the extreme right to the violent aspects. And I have to emphasize that free speech is protected and they should never uh, target a group because of their speech. But you have to watch uh, the violence because if you do, you can prevent something like a Timothy McVeigh blowing up the Murrah Federal Building. And so there is a risk there. And uh, what I've observed is that 
these right-wing extremist groups, uh, you know, first of all, they're fed with grievances. And yeah. uh, whenever you have a charismatic leader that attracts uh, those with grievances against institutions, against society, and you blame uh, the government or an institution on it, and then you build in the violence and the uh, racial uh, uh, hatred aspect of it, it's just a it's a boiling pot, and it's uh, and it could pour over the pot any time into violence, and uh, it should be a concern for every generation. And and so it's something that is part of human nature that whenever you are aggrieved or you feel like you're a victim, you try to find somebody to blame or an institution to blame. And and if the conspiracy theories uh, uh, are fomented and spread and and uh, then you've got people to blame and a certain element of those uh, turn violent. And so you might have, just like the CSA the back in the 80s, you know, 90% of them were uh, wrong in their beliefs, but they never crossed the line into violence. But what you've got to watch is that 10% that take it the step too far. They say, these are our marching orders. This is the go-ahead uh, to act in a violent fashion. So that's the 10% that law enforcement has to keep a watch on and be concerned about. And it's not just the extremists on the right wing. Obviously, we still continue to be concerned about uh, the uh, jihadist and the violent extremist on every side of the political spectrum, uh, but we we do have to watch and we see uh, a concern these days about uh, the extreme right wing violent tendencies. The first time I think you came on my political radar was in 1998 when you were a member of the House and you had a, a very prominent role in the Monica Lewinsky scandal on the subsequent impeachment. You were one of the, the House managers. A lot of people know about that from the Trump impeachments. Those are the folks who go over to the Senate and prosecute the case. And uh, I had just gotten to Washington in 98 and it was one of the first stories I covered. Um you knew Bill Clinton from Arkansas, right? I mean, he was governor when you were dealing with that that case, and um, I assume we're probably working with uh, him during the the standoff with Ellison. I know Clinton impeachment is ancient history at this point, but I just sort of like to know what your big takeaways were from that time in our politics. Well, uh, I was a freshman member of Congress. Uh, I was asked to be on the House manager's team, which means I was a prosecutor in that impeachment case. And being from Arkansas and having a long history with Bill Clinton, we're a small state. We know each other. And I knew that that would be uh, perceived as not good for the state and uh, not good for my political future. But oh, I really? You thought because you thought, he was popular because he was still popular? Well, he was very popular. We were still in Arkansas, a, yeah, a, a largely Democratic state. Yeah, uh, he was the only president ever elected from Arkansas, and so and you weren't were, like jumping to get on that team. <laughs> no, in fact, when I was asked, I left and told Charles Kennedy, a fellow uh, Judiciary Committee member, that uh, Chairman Hyde's uh, crazy if he thinks I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but but I gave it thought and. I just really sensed that I had a constitutional responsibility uh, to do it in a professional way, to uh, 
you know, make sure the constitutional process worked and in a fair way. And so, and also, I I believe that I could speak for my own convictions and beliefs and principles on this more than just letting someone else do it. So I said yes to it, and uh, it was historic. At that time, it had been the first time it had been done in over 100 years, and uh, since then, we've had a couple of different impeachments, so it's <laughs> almost become routine, regretfully, for our country. Yeah. But my takeaway is that our founding fathers did an incredible job of setting a very high bar for impeachment, and uh, the trial in the Senate uh, is governed very carefully, and there's always a political mix there, but... Uh, you know, the system can work, and our, you know, allies across the globe looked at it and thought, you know, this is very odd process for the United States, but it worked. Our Constitution worked, and, uh, you know, the outcome uh, was what it was. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that the whole lesson is that uh, we should not treat impeachment lightly. It has to be a serious matter. And I don't like the idea of just because we have a disagreement on policy, we ought to start talking impeachment. It ought to be yeah, for serious yeah. wrongdoing. I, now that I'm thinking about it, that entire uh, impeachment was just filled with Arkansans because, of course, Dale Bumpers gave the closing arguments on behalf of the presidents that you know many considered really sealed the deal that there would be no conviction. Did you ever have a relationship with Clinton after that whole episode? He was he was pretty mad at you guys at the time. <laughs> Well, but he's also famously forgiving and, and has a history of uh, reaching out to people he perceived as political enemies. Well, we've always been very respectful political adversaries. And yeah. that's really how our system ought to work. <laughs> and so when I got elected governor, he campaigned for my Democratic opponent. And my reaction to that is, you know, they're the same party. Absolutely, he ought to be doing that. He has a right to be doing that. But whenever I won that race, uh, I reached out actually to uh, President Clinton and uh, had a good visit with him because, you know, the Clinton Presidential Library and Foundation yeah. there in Little Rock is a great uh, asset for our state in the sense of drawing visitors. It's a moment of history. And so we've worked on some things together, had, uh, you know, conversations uh, from time to time. And uh, we all uh, look for ways that we can support our state of Arkansas. And, and so, yeah, it, 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 we have a, a good relationship today. That says a lot about you because I think there are some politicians who wouldn't be able to get over the anti-Clinton sentiment and actually wouldn't um, say something positive about the presidential library being there, uh, which is kind of a strange thing. I think your reaction is the, the sort of normal political impulse. It's good for the state of Arkansas. But um I could think of a few other uh, governors who could turn that into a sort of partisan issue and, and wouldn't want to be associated with the Clinton Library, but you very clearly see that as something that Arkansans should be proud of and a reason to visit the state. Well, absolutely. It's a part of history. And to me, how we approach politics uh, should be, we have our disagreements, we fight hard for our cause and our beliefs, but uh you know, we don't impugn somebody's integrity or we don't impugn somebody's motives and say they hate America. You know, Bill Clinton cares about people. We just have a different way of approaching solutions. And that's same for the difference between Democrats and Republicans in Washington today. And America wants solutions. They want problem solvers. And 
and people that can get things done and set aside differences whenever it's practical to do so. Uh, and so that's my approach to politics. Two more uh, easy issues. Um, abortion. Um, <laughs> Thank you for bringing up an easy issue. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a, a, a tricky one for Republicans running for president, it seems. There's a lot of enthusiasm among Democrats who believe that the Dobbs decision uh, was a, an important uh, reason that Democrats defied expectations in some places in 2022. Um, if you're president, what is the abortion bill that you would want to sign? To me, the critical elements are, first of all, uh, I'm okay with it being resolved at the state level. Uh, the states are making their own determination on those health care issues. But if it came to a national policy on it, then I would want to have uh, more restrictions that are reasonable restrictions and then also have reasonable exceptions. And if you look where America is today, they by and large support restrictions on abortion as long as you have exceptions for uh, the uh, life of the mother and in cases of rape and incest. And then there's, you know, a close look at fetal abnormalities and want to make sure that some of those things are covered. But that's where the debate will be, and that's where I would be looking at having uh, more restrictions on abortion, but having reasonable exceptions there. And that, to me, is where the American public is, and that's where uh, is kind of bill that I would sign as president if that consensus was built in Congress. Is part of what you're trying to say that you want to be flexible in terms of uh, of national policy and and not tied down to um, you know to being a proponent of a total ban, a six week ban, a fifteen week ban? Because you know as this primary goes on, you're going to get pressed more and more on those details, right? We saw how Tim Scott got tripped up on some of those questions recently. Well, as governor, I signed a very restrictive abortion bill in Arkansas that was part of the trigger, you know, if Roe versus Wade was reversed, which it was, the Dodds decision comes down, and that triggered our law in Arkansas that uh, banned abortion except uh, in the cases of the life of the mother. And I wrote a letter at the time, said I would prefer having uh, additional exceptions uh, in place because that's been my historic position. Uh, but, you know, I'll defend that, uh, that, you know, we can have restrictions on abortion, uh, but I'll look at what is presented and I'll look at what uh, the exceptions are. And I expect to sign a reasonable bill that would come to my desk. And I'll state my position clearly, uh, my views on that, as I'm asked during the course of the campaign. Would you sign a law, a national law that's basically identical to the Arkansas law? I think I've articulated that right now. Uh, as to my approach on this, uh, I want the reasonable exceptions in place. Uh, I want to see what Congress does. And the practical fact is that unless you have a supermajority of Republicans or Democrats, it's not going to pass. It's not going to get on the president's desk, and it's going to continue to be resolved uh, at the state level. And I think that's where we'll probably wind up, uh, but we'll see. So you were head of the Drug Enforcement Agency under President George W. Bush. A lot has changed with uh, regard to drug policy since you were head of the DEA, but you were dealing with some of the early issues surrounding uh, medical marijuana and the legalization movement. 
I'm curious at this stage in your, your life and career, where you come down on this vast uh, state level experiment with marijuana decriminalization. Arkansas is a good example. I mean, Arkansas, while I was governor, passed medical marijuana. You signed gov- it? Uh, well, I didn't have to sign it because it was initiated by the public, uh, right, by the people, it. but I did have to implement it. And so, yeah. So I, you were I, against it? Well, I assume you were against it when it yeah. was going. Th- yeah. And then we most recently had recreational use of marijuana on the ballot, which I opposed, and it was defeated. But, you know, one, the federal government is silent on this issue, and that silence allows the states to have free reign and set their own policy. And uh, the result is that we have probably a majority of states now that have medical marijuana. Others have gone further. But this is uh, unusual that we have a conflict between federal and state law that's going to have to be resolved at some point. You know, from my perspective as former head of the DEA, uh, this is a decision of elected representatives that they have to make. Uh, The DEA is simply an enforcement agency for what uh, the law is determined to be. And from a policy standpoint, uh, I think uh, having medical marijuana is uh, something that's going to be with us and makes some sense. Uh, It does provide relief, and uh, even though it doesn't still have the stamp of approval of the Medical Association. uh, But, you know, I don't like the idea of going further and just simply uh, legalizing uh, the, the, you know, different illegal drugs that we have right now. But that'll be a continued debate into the future, and our democracy is not going to fall uh, if they did legalize marijuana. That's so, that's so interesting to hear you put it that way. And it does seem like the way that what you just articulated is is about the where the, the center of uh, the Republican Party is on this. And it's especially interesting to hear it as someone who used to run the, the DEA. Do you think if you were president, you would make any modifications to the way the federal government treats these state-level experiments in terms of enforcement? I would want to provide more clarity uh, because right now there's a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty uh, in terms of uh, our enforcement policy at the federal level, uh, which is basically non-existent. And so I think we need to set clear policy as to what uh, the federal government is going to allow uh, until Congress changes it. Right now it's still... Uh, illegal under federal law, and there's an acquiescence on the medical marijuana side, uh, but they still aren't allowed to access the uh, financial system of America, which makes it difficult uh, for transactions. So there needs to be some uh, specificity, and uh, hopefully we can bring our state policy and our federal policy closer together, and that's what I would try to do. I want to start by talking a little bit about Trump, which I know is the thing you get asked about the most. But I want to do it a little bit from your perspective of dealing with the Trump administration as a governor. And maybe you can just tell us a little bit what it's been like dealing with uh, a President Trump and a um, a, a President Biden. Um, I know I know one was long a lot longer than the other as uh, as governor. Well, the big difference as governor looking at the Trump administration, the Biden administration, is that uh, the Trump administration had a high regard for state flexibility, uh, whether it's during the pandemic or whether it is in the implementation of Medicaid rules. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to get 
more state control over some of these uh, major programs. And when the Biden administration came in uh, during the uh, second part of the uh, pandemic and we're trying to get out vaccines, uh, the federal government controlled the distribution system more than allowing flexibility for the states to use their existing uh, programs and uh, resources to get the vaccines out. That's just one small example. But it was also true in, in environmental enforcement through the EPA. Uh, there was a much more federal grab that came about during the Biden administration. And so there were significant differences and reflects the differences again of the uh, parties. And so uh, that's why as a Republican running uh, for president, uh, I think it's important to have a change of direction where we give a higher regard to state flexibility, whether it is in Medicaid work requirements or whether it is uh, in uh, the uh, partnership that we have in, in health care. What's the thing you're most proud of that you did as governor? Well, a lot I'm proud of, uh, but my goodness, uh, lowering taxes, which was historic, uh, to uh, improving computer science education in Arkansas, but also handling the pandemic. And I'm very proud of the fact that we worked hard to open our schools for in-classroom instruction and keep them open in that fall of 2020. The studies show that we ranked second in the nation in terms of the states that had the most days of in-classroom instruction for our students during the pandemic. It kept them from falling further behind, but also the adverse social impact of the isolation that came from having our schools closed. So I'm very proud of the fact we kept our businesses open. Uh, We all had some constraints on our restaurants, but we opened up as soon as we could. And Uh, We never distinguished essential and non-essential businesses. We never had a shelter-in-place rule, and that allowed us to uh, keep our economy moving, but just as importantly, to provide jobs for families that were so critical. What do you think the biggest mistake is that you made as governor if you had a do-over? You know, quite frankly, it's uh, going to China, trying to move manufacturing from China over here to the United States. Uh, you know, I'd, Interesting. Uh, you, okay. What well, year was that? Well, whenever I got elected, uh, my focus was creating jobs in Arkansas. And so uh, China was an open uh, market at that time. And where uh, I went there to recruit manufacturing from China back here in the United States, and that included, you know, Chinese manufacturing facilities. Well, you know, through the Trump years, uh, our relationship became very hostile and uh, the trade uh, you know, embargoes and the tariffs shut all of that down. And so, yes, I wish I would have spent more time recruiting industry you know, in Japan and in South Korea, uh, but at the time that was an open market. So it's not necessarily a bad decision I made at the time, but in hindsight, uh, that was a wasted effort and uh, uh, didn't prove to be successful. I just want people to be able to get to know you a little bit and, and tell us about some of your your early history. When did you know that you were interested in politics and public service? What were your first political memories that where you caught the bug? Well, you know, actually, uh, I got politically interested whenever I was in high school. Uh, because uh, I started following Ronald Reagan and 
Uh, I loved his uh, conservative approach, and it was new, and it made sense to me even at that age. And so I was interested, but I didn't follow or pursue that. When I got out of high school, I had the best job ever. I was working in a Welch's grape juice factory, and I loved it, and I was making money. And, and What so was I'm that like, like? Like where the well, grapes come in and get crushed, that kind of thing? Yeah, the the crush, but then uh, I was Were you like cook. Lucy in, in I Love Lucy in the famous uh, episode where she's uh, crushing the grapes at the winery? You know, I have done that. <laughs> uh, that's more of the political show, though. Uh, stomping grapes, that's a political tradition in Arkansas. But Oh, is it really? I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so we, we have a lot of uh, good traditions. But, uh, you know, when it comes to politics, though, uh, I got out of law school and I was just planted on – uh, practicing law in a small town and uh, raising my family. But, you know, because of my faith, because of, uh, you know, the competitive nature of trying to build a Republican Party in a blue state, uh, I did get involved in uh, politics early, but it was really at the grassroots level. And one thing led to another. And uh, uh, I got appointed as youngest United States attorney in the nation. And that set me off on an up-and-down political career, but gave me incredible opportunities to serve. You grew up in the Democratic South when you were growing up. Were you raised in a, in a, in a family that knew they were Republicans already? No, my, uh, my parents, uh, of course, they came from Oklahoma, migrated to Arkansas, uh, and uh, they were independent. In fact, uh, when John Kennedy and, and Richard Nixon ran against each other, they split their vote. And so, you know, they taught us independence, participation, and I really didn't make a decision uh, to be a Republican until uh, after uh, I started practicing law and fellow lawyers came up to me and said, look, you got to be a Democrat if you're going to have an opportunity to be a prosecutor or a judge, you got to go down this path. And of course, I'm stubborn and, and I looked at it all and, and I liked uh, the national flavor of conservative politics under Ronald Reagan's leadership. And so I moved that direction. So it was a conscious decision on my part to do it. And uh, I was going very much against the establishment, going upstream. And uh, we fought uh, a battle for really decades to build the Republican Party here in Arkansas. You you went to Bob Jones. Did you grow up in a very religious family, like traditionally Southern kind of Bible Belt uh, uh, family? I did, but, uh, uh, you know, it was very personal, our faith to us, and uh, I was encouraged to go to uh, Bob Jones. Part of it was uh, it's, uh, you know, biblical teaching, even though that I had an accounting degree uh, and got four years of accounting, and then I got the bug for law school, and I was the youngest of six children. My dad uh, was a farmer, uh, worked in a poultry plant, and, uh, you know, I was the first one to ever consider, you know, graduate school like that, being a lawyer. So your brother was a member of the House and a senator, and you, you know, remember the House and senior administration official in the Bush administration and a governor. So I know your parents are no longer alive, but they got to see some of the success of you and Tim. There was nothing else like that in your your family up until that point? No, I was the youngest of uh, six children. And, oh, same. Uh, I'm fifth of six. Well, I have a uh, sense of what that's like. Yeah, as the youngest of six, the people asked me if all my brothers and sisters were in politics, and I said, no, the rest of them were normal. 
so it was just really uh, Tim and me, which uh, the uh, number five and number six. Uh, oh wow! Okay, in the family. But my mom uh, did live long enough to see uh, both my brother Tim and myself elected to the House of Representatives and to the United States Senate at the same time. And we're the only brother combination that was ever elected simultaneously in the history of our country. I was going to mention that. I saw that fact. That's fascinating. And that still hasn't been repeated? No. uh, Usually, you know, if there's a brother combination, it's you know, it's a succession issue, or one gets elected, and two years later, another brother gets elected. Uh, but in our case, and it's very difficult when you're running simultaneously for open seats, but it worked, and uh, it was a proud moment for my mom, who had seen the ups and downs in politics, and my dad, uh, when he was alive, campaigned vigorously for me in some tough losing battles in Arkansas because we hadn't built the Republican Party yet. So very proud of that moment that uh, my mom got to see. Yeah, you lost a bunch of races in, in between 85 and 97. Did you ever Did you ever think, you know, I'm, I'm done, that's it? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, in building the party, uh, I had my... Uh, share of losses, but I also had my share of wins during that time, and I was chairman of the party, so I was able to be in a competitive position against Bill Clinton, who was governor, and uh, really built the party. Uh, But uh, you asked me about uh, my losses, and it gets discouraging after a while, and sometimes you wonder whether you're really going to have the right opportunity and run in the right year, and uh, it all worked out. It did. I got elected governor on my second try, served eight years, and and then have had the opportunity to serve in Congress in the Bush administration in high position. So I've been blessed in uh, the opportunity to serve multiple branches of government. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you today. Thank you. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Jenny Almond is Politico's executive producer of audio. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And special thanks to Antoinette Grajeda for field production in Bentonville, Arkansas this week. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. 
I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.